Well, it is good to be back. I, uh, when I came here in January of 2004, I immediately became aware of the ministry here, Colonial Baptist Church. And your pastor was right. I was at Southeastern uh, back in 1992 to 96, but then the Lord took us to Louisville, where I served at Southern Seminary for eight years and then came back a little over three years ago and immediately became aware of the ministry here. I've had uh, Stephen out to preach a number of times. And I always say to our students, with honesty, he is one of my favorite expositors. And uh, I know you know how fortunate you are to sit in his uh, presence and hear him expound the Word of God week after week after week. In fact, really, month after month and year after year. And uh, it is a wonderful testimony to your love for the Word of God that you bring yourself under such teaching. And so I'm in some ways intimidated to be here with you, knowing what you hear week after week. But I also tell my students, even if you're a terrible speaker, if you'll just stay in the Word of God, God will bless. And so that's what we're going to do. Take your Bible and join me in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5, in my judgment, it is the most strategic chapter in this last book of the Bible. There are 22 wonderful chapters, but there is a sense in which everything moves toward chapter 5, and everything flows from chapter 5 as well. Let me prepare us for the study by reading for you verse 1 through verse 7. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came. And he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When I was in graduate school at the University of Texas, I encountered there what you could describe as a kaleidoscope of worldviews. There were persons in that program of study just like me, a Bible-believing evangelical Christian. But there were others in the program who had a completely different way of looking at life altogether. Some of my classmates actually referred to themselves as neo-Orthodox Christians. And by that, they meant something like this. Uh, I don't believe the Bible is the Word of God, but I believe the Bible can become God's Word to you in some type of mystical or subjective experience. Some other classmates, without any hesitation, said, I consider myself to be a liberal Christian. And by that they meant they were skeptical about the supernatural aspects of the Bible. They were not sure that Jesus was virgin born. They were not sure that he performed miracles. They were not sure that he rose from the dead. But they liked the moral teachings of the Bible, especially things like the Sermon on the Mount. Other of my classmates came from different world religions altogether. I had classmates that were Buddhist, classmates that were Muslim, classmates that were Hindu, a number of my classmates were Jewish, and some of my classmates and almost all of my professors were either agnostic or committed to atheism. 
I remember one evening in a class in rhetoric, sitting under a teacher who was an avowed atheist, committed, he said, to a relativistic worldview way of thinking. In that class one evening, a girl, a young lady, asked the professor, I think, a very profound question. She asked him, what do you think the future holds for mankind? And this agnostic professor waited for a moment, and then he said, well, I'm not very optimistic about the future. When I look at history, I discover man has not treated man very well. And when I look at the contemporary situation, I discover not much has changed. And then he made a statement that I've never forgotten. He said, I believe the future holds for mankind certain destruction and potential annihilation. I am not very hopeful about the future. Now, let me say something to you. If I were an atheist or an agnostic like that professor, I would agree with him. If man must save himself, I got news. We've got no hope. He's right. If it depends upon you and me, the future is one of certain destruction and potential annihilation. But you see, that's where Revelation chapter 5 becomes so crucial. Because if I were to summarize for you what this fifth chapter is all about, I could take you back to a little song that I was taught as a little boy in a Baptist church in Atlanta, Georgia. And that little song simply said, speaking of our God, He has got the whole world in his hands. This world is not out of control. This world is not moving forward willy-nilly with no one at the helm. Why do I say that? Because Revelation chapter 5 teaches us that in heaven right now, there is a lamb who sits on a throne, and that lamb is controlling and guiding and orchestrating all events to their perfect climactic conclusion. Because he is indeed on that throne, And because heaven is absolutely enthralled with him, you and I likewise, I hope, will lead this time of worship with the same vision of the Lord Jesus that they have of him in heaven. Why is he the worthy lamb who sits on the throne in heaven and also should sit on the throne of your and my heart as well? Three things leap out from this text that make that, I believe, clear. Number one. Jesus Christ is the worthy lamb because he is the Lord of history. Chapter 5, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. The right hand in the Semitic mind is the hand of authority. Interestingly, the word throne, of course, is the place of authority and is a word that occurs more than 40 times in the book of Revelation. So John says, in the place of authority, the throne, and in the right hand, the hand of authority, John says, I saw a scroll written inside and on the back sealed with seven seals. Now, it's interesting to note, in a sense, Revelation 4 and 5 really constitute a single vision. If you go back to chapter 4, you discover that there the emphasis or the focus is upon God the Father and the act of creation. But then when you come to chapter 5, it shifts to God the Son and the act 
of salvation. And so now we're moving from God having the right to see and do whatever he wishes to this world because he is its creator to the fact that God has the right to do whatever he wants with this world because he is its savior. And so we're shifting from creation to salvation and there at the throne, there in his right hand, John says, I see a scroll and it is filled with information written inside and on the back, and it is sealed with seven seals. Of course, numbers in Revelation are symbolic, highly significant, and the number seven is perhaps the most important because almost without exception, the number seven stands for that which is perfect or complete. So let's summarize. In the place of authority, in the hand of authority, John sees a scroll filled with information And it is perfectly and completely sealed up. Now, there's a major question, isn't there? What is this scroll that is in the right hand of God the Father as he sits on the throne? Well, theologians and Bible scholars have a field day. Some say it is a title deed to the earth. Some say it is the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. D.A. Carson, the very fine scholar at Trinity, says it is a book of blessing and cursing, and I would not disagree with that judgment at all. Others say it should be identified with Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9 and verse 10, where Ezekiel sees a book of woes, a book of judgment. But I have a different idea that is somewhat complemented by the observation of Don Carson, that is this. I believe the scroll is simply the remainder of the book of Revelation, In fact, in chapter 6, the scroll begins to be unfolded. So I think you could make a good argument that the scroll contains the content of Revelation 6 through Revelation 22. And yes, it is a book of blessing and cursing. In fact, I would say it is a book of three things. It is, number one, a book of retribution or judgment. Secondly, it is a book of redemption or salvation. And thirdly, it is a book of restoration. You say, why do you say it's the book of retribution or judgment? Because in Revelation 6, there are the seal judgments. In Revelation 8 and 9, the trumpet judgments. In Revelation 16, the bowl judgments. And brothers and sisters, if the book of Revelation is true, and I believe it is, it teaches us that in the last seven years of history, More than one half of the world's population will die as a result of the just judgment of God. You think about it. That means more than three billion people will die in just seven years because of the seal, the trumpet, and the bold judgment. Yes, it is a book of retribution, a book of judgment, but also it is a book of redemption or a book of salvation. Just take chapter 7. In verse 1 through verse 8, the Bible teaches us God is not through with the Jew. Indeed, there's going to come a day, as Paul says in Romans 11, when all of Israel will be saved. And there in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, you see 12,000 sealed from the 12 tribes of Israel, unique servants of God whom I believe will take the everlasting gospel around the earth. And indeed, there's going to be a great revival in the last seven years of history. You say, why would you say that? Take your Bible for a moment. Turn over to chapter 7 and look with me there beginning at verse 9. Revelation 7 and verse 9. After these things, after what things, John? Seeing the 144,000 sealed in verses 1 through 8. After these things, I looked, 
And behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues. They were standing before the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands, and they were crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Now, move over with me just to verse 13. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, now watch, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, John is clear. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. And yet back in verse 9, John says, they are a multitude that no one could number. In other words, God is not through with the Jew. God is not through with the nations. There is coming a day when a great revival will sweep the planet as we move toward the very end of history. So that scroll, it is a book of judgment or retribution. That scroll, it's a book of salvation or redemption. But also, that scroll is a book of restoration. For when you come to the last two chapters of the Revelation, chapter 21 and 22, what do you read of there? You read of a new heaven, you read of a new earth, and you also read of a new Jerusalem. And there tucked away in chapter 21 is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. Just listen, Revelation 21, verse 4. What will the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem be like? God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. I don't know about you, but I look forward to that day when there's no more death, no more pain, no more crying, no more sorrow. I look forward to the day when all things are made new. And so that is what we see in the scroll that is in the right hand of God the Father as he sits on the throne in heaven. It reveals to us that God has a wonderful plan for the end of history. But go with me now back to chapter 5. And note with me in verses 2 and following that if heaven has this, if God has this wonderful plan, there's also a tragic problem that exists as well. Look at what verse 2 says. Then I saw a strong angel, and he is a strong angel because he needs a mighty voice. I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud, a mighty voice. And here's the key question of chapter 5. Who is worthy? A word that occurs four times, verse 2, verse 4, verse 9, verse 12. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Well, here's the answer. No one. No one in heaven or on the earth, or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So in verse 4, we see the response of John the apostle, I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. I've tried to use my sanctified, I hope, imagination when I read these verses. Now, I've tried to think, what was it like when John saw this scene unfold in the vision that God gave him? Think for a moment. John's in heaven. 
He sees the throne of God. He sees the, the Father sitting on the throne. And he sees the angel ask this question. And he begins to look around heaven. And by now in heaven, he looks over here. And my goodness, there's Moses. There's Joshua. Well, back there is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you know what? When this question is asked, they don't move. He looks back here, and there's Elijah and Elisha. He looks over here, and my goodness, there's Daniel, and there's Isaiah, and there's Jeremiah, but they don't move either. He looks over here, and by now, there's Paul, there's Peter, and his brother James is while there he is right there. And they don't move either. In fact, when the question is asked, they drop their heads as if they're embarrassed because they are. Because they recognize, number one, they have no right to even be in heaven in their own righteousness. They certainly would not be so arrogant or prideful as to walk forward to the throne of God and say, I'm worthy to take that scroll out of your hand. And so for just a moment, it looks like God's grand plan for the end of the age is not going to come to pass. It's not going to come to fruition. But then verse 5, what a wonderful verse. One of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, there's one. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he is the root of David. He has prevailed. He has conquered. He has overcome. And he can open the scroll. And he can loose its seven seals. The elders are introduced in chapter 4. There are 24 of them. I believe they represent the redeemed of all the ages. And so one of them comes to John and says, stop crying, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. That is a messianic title found in Genesis chapter 49, verse 9 and verse 10. As the lion of the tribe of Judah, he is a king and he is strong. And therefore he has the ability to open that scroll. But he's also called what? The root of David. You find that messianic title in Isaiah 11, verse 1 and verse 10. And as the root of David, we are taught, yes, he comes from Judah, but he also comes from David. And as the root, he is the very source of all the blessings of God for his messianic people. And so a dual title beautifully brought together. The lion, he's strong. The root of David, he's the source of all blessings. And this one, and this one alone can approach the throne Take the scroll and break and open its seals. That's why the Bible says clearly in these first verses, Jesus Christ is the Lord of history. Now, secondly, in verses 6 and 7, the Bible also teaches he is worthy because he is the Lord of victory. When you come to verse 6, you encounter an enigma. You encounter something puzzling. You're not expecting it. You say, why not? Because we were told in verse 5, you look for the lion. You look for the root of David. But that's not what we find. Look at it with me and notice how dramatically John unfolds the scene. I looked and behold in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, angelic beings of worship. And in the midst of the elders stood not the lion of the tribe of Judah, stood not the root of David, but stood... A lamb, as though it had been slain. That word lamb occurs 29 times in the book of Revelation. This particular form of the word lamb, it is the Greek word arneos. 
only occurs one time outside of the book of Revelation. In John chapter 21, when Jesus says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then feed my lambs. It's a word that means a little lamb, a a pet lamb. And 29 times that word occurs in the book of Revelation. Now stay with me. 28 times it is a reference to the Lord Jesus. 29 29 times it occurs. 28 times it's a reference to Jesus. So you must be saying, well then, Danny, there's one occasion when it is not a reference to Jesus. That's right. And there's a very important lesson I can teach you from that one occurrence. Take your Bible for just a moment. Turn over to chapter 13 and look at verse 11. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. This is not a prophecy conference, but let me just quickly tell you what's going on. In Revelation chapter 13, you are introduced to the three great enemies of our Lord Jesus as we move toward the end of the age. In fact, what you have in Revelation 13 is nothing less than a counterfeit trinity. There is the dragon, Satan. He counterfeits, of course, God the Father. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 10, you are introduced to an individual called the beast out of the sea. We know him more popularly as the Antichrist. Interestingly, the word Antichrist never occurs in the book of Revelation. It only occurs in 1 John and 2 John. But what John calls the Antichrist, what Paul calls the man of sin, here in Revelation, he is called the beast out of the sea. He receives a deadly wound and is healed, counterfeiting the resurrection of Jesus. And so you've got the dragon counterfeiting God the Father. You've got the beast, the Antichrist, counterfeiting God the Son. And then in verse 11, you're introduced to another beast who is later identified as the false prophet who does nothing less than counterfeit what? The ministry of the Holy Spirit. And look at what the Bible says about him in verse 11. I looked and I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. Do you see it? He looks like a friend, but he speaks the message of the evil one. At first glance, he looks like he's on God's side. At first glance, he looks like He's a friend. But John says, now you stay with me. John says, don't pay too much attention to how he looks. But listen very carefully to what he says. Now, I could get in some deep water, but I'm a guest, and so I will stay in shallow water. But I will say this. There are a lot of folks on television. There are a lot of folks on Christian. Let me back up. There are a lot of folks on Christian television. There are a lot of folks on Christian radio. There are folks that you can access via the internet. Some of them stand behind pulpits. Some of them will even occasionally stand behind a Bible. But I will tell you something. If you will just very carefully listen to what they say and weigh their message and evaluate their message against the Word of God, you'll discover that though they may look like a friend, Their message has its source in hell itself. They do not magnify the Lord Jesus. They do not call people to a crucified life. They peddle a prosperity gospel that is no gospel at all. 
And they indeed bring shame to the church and the cause of Christ. And though they may look like a lamb, the Bible says they have the message of the dragon. Brothers and sisters, looks can be deceiving. And you and I need to be discerning enough to be able to weigh the message so that we can discern the truth from the error. In fact, we later learn in Revelation that the whole world is deceived by the preaching and the message of this beast, of this false prophet, except the very elect. So you say, well, there then is a portrait of a false lamb. That's right. Can I see the real lamb? You better believe it. Go back now to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, there's a beautiful portrait that unfolds here. John says, I looked in the midst of the elders, and there stood a lamb as though it had been slain. It's interesting. In the Greek language, the word stood and the word slain are perfect tense verbs. You say, what does that mean? A perfect tense verb speaks of action in past time that's results are abiding and continuing. In other words, there was a time in the past when the lamb was slain and he still bears the marks of his death. There was also a time in the past when the lamb began to stand. And the lamb is standing today. And as far as you look into the future, the lamb will always be standing. That the lamb is standing speaks of his resurrection. That the lamb was slain speaks of his crucifixion. And you say, Danny, will I be able to see Jesus when I get to heaven? Oh, I believe we will see Jesus. And when I get to heaven, what will I see? Well, I can't tell you everything we'll see, but I believe this. Even in his glorified state, I believe he will still bear the scars in his hands, the scars in his feet, and the scar at his side as a perpetual reminder for you and for me of the great sacrifice that he paid to save you and save me from our sins. Yes, he was slain. He bears the marks of his sacrifice, but he is now standing. Then John says something rather mysterious. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. I remember one of the first times I spoke from this text, and after we were going home, my sons who were small, they had paid attention, which was an encouraging thing to a dad. And they said to me, but dad, You said that Jesus has seven eyes, and that's scary. And I thought when we got to heaven, we wouldn't be scared. And so I looked at my wife, and she said, oh, no, this is yours, big boy. You're the theologian. (laughs) And so I began to rack my brain, and then suddenly I I came across what I thought would be a helpful analogy. And I said, well, guys, we were living in Dallas. I said, guys, we are now big fans of the Dallas Cowboys. And they said, yeah, Dad, we loved the Cowboys. We loved, well, we loved them when Tom Landry was there. We didn't like it after that, but that's a whole other issue. But anyway, yeah, we like the Cowboys. We, we like the Cowboys. And I said, well, are they really Cowboys? And they said, um, no, they're football players. I said, well, why do we call them Cowboys? And they said, well, because um, Cowboys are tough. and Cowboys are rough. And Cowboys can do things. And I said, that's right. And so it's just a picture that gives us what we hope the football players will be like on the football field. And I said, here's what's so wonderful about the Bible. When it tells you Jesus is like something, he's like that. And here's the deal. In the Bible, or really even in life, when you see that phrase, seven horns, horns in the Bible are often a picture of strength or power. 
Seven, of course, means that which is what? Perfect. So power, perfect, put them together. He's got perfect power. He's all-powerful. We use the theological word. He is omnipotent. Well, look at the next phrase. And he has seven eyes. Well, what do eyes do? Eyes see. Your eyes are the primary means whereby you and I gain knowledge. So eyes, knowledge, seven, perfect. Put them together. He's got perfect knowledge. He knows everything. We use the phrase, he is omniscient. Then finally, and these are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Now, you and I know there are not seven spirits of God. There's only one Holy Spirit of God. But what's going on here? Well, the number seven stands for that which is perfect, complete. And so what he says is, through the perfect spirit, God sends his presence out where? Into all of the earth. He is everywhere present. We call that his omnipresence. In other words, listen to me. If all I had was Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, I would know this. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is all-powerful. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is all-knowing. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is everywhere present. The Bible teaches that Jesus Christ, he is God. And as God, he is the wonderful lamb who can now move toward the throne and take that scroll out of the hand of God the Father. Have you ever stopped to think about the theme of the lamb in the Bible? But it's a majestic theme that runs all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Think about it. Genesis chapter 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Isaac says, Father, where is the animal for sacrifice? And in Genesis 22, 8, the Bible says God will provide for himself the lamb. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that on that occasion, God did not provide a lamb. He provided a ram. But he would provide a lamb 2,000 years later at the same mountain when he sacrificed his son, the Lord Jesus. Move with me to Exodus chapter 12, the Passover. And there the Bible says of a Passover lamb, your lamb shall be without blemish. Move with me to Isaiah 53, the great suffering servant passage of the Lord. And there in Isaiah 53 verse 7, the Bible says of the lamb, he was led as a lamb to the slaughter. Come with me now to the Gospels in John chapter 1 and verse 29. And there John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus approaching. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Put it together. The Bible says God will provide the Lamb. The Bible says the Lamb will have to be without any blemish. The Bible says the Lamb will be slaughtered. The Bible says the Lamb will take away the sin of the world. And now Revelation 5 says, here's that lamb. And this lamb now sits on the very throne of God. And so verse 7, then he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. One man in reflecting upon this scene in heaven simply sat down and penned these words. Mary had a Little lamb, his soul was white as snow. And anywhere his father sent, the lamb was sure to go. He came to earth to die one day, the sin of man to atone. But now he reigns in heaven above. He's the lamb upon the throne. Jesus Christ, the Lord of history. Jesus Christ, 
the Lord of victory. Number three, Jesus Christ is worthy because he is the Lord of glory. In verses 8 through 14, you and I are confronted with three beautiful hymns in heaven. The first hymn is sung by the saints. The second hymn is sung by the angels. And the third hymn is sung by all of creation. Look at it with me very quickly, verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. And each having a harp, well, there's the instrument of praise, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So they bow before the Lamb, and they come to him in praise and in prayer. And then they begin to sing a new kind of song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why is he worthy? Four reasons are given. Number one, for you were slain. Number two, you have redeemed us to God by your blood. From where? Out of every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation. Number three, you have made us kings and priests. Some have it a kingdom of priests to our God. And number four, we shall reign on the earth with him. And so the saints begin to praise the Lamb for all the glory and blessing of their redemption. Well, interestingly, the angels are watching. And I don't know if I can actually say this with theological accuracy, but I think the angels actually developed a little holy jealousy. And they were not content to sit on the sideline in this worship service. And so verse 11, I looked And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. We would say in Georgia, there's a bunch of angels up there in heaven. There's a mess of angels. Now, here's the deal. Stay with me. Don't you get caught up with how many angels there are. Don't even get caught up, I beg you, with a fascination of angels. Don't worry about who they are. Just pay attention to what they do. And what do angels do in heaven? Well, here it is, verse 12. They sang with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To do what? To receive a sevenfold blessing. Look at it. To receive power and riches and wisdom, and strength. Stop. You can't give him any of those things, can you? You and I cannot give to the lamb any of those things. We can't give him power. He's all-powerful. We can't give him riches. He owns everything. We can't give him wisdom. He knows everything. We can't give him strength. He has all power, but you know what? We can give him the last three things. We can give him honor. We can give him glory, and we can give him a blessing. That word blessing is a beautiful Greek word, eulogia. Eulogia. We get our English word eulogy from it. The E-U is a prefix, which means good. Logia, logos word, means word. So a eulogia is a good word. You say, well, Danny, wait a minute. I thought a eulogia or a eulogy is what a preacher does at somebody's funeral. Hopefully that's what he can do. Hopefully when you are in a pine box and your body is there and your spirit hopefully has gone to heaven, your preacher, your pastor with integrity can say a good word about you. You know, it's interesting when you think about the things we are passionate about saying good words concerning. I, I grew up in Georgia. 
Uh, I'm a huge Georgia Bulldog fan. Came here, and my goodness, UNC fans and Duke fans, nearly guilty of idolatry, at least best I could tell. (laughs) Then moved to Kentucky for eight years, and I saw true idol worship in the state of Kentucky. Not for their football team, (laughs) but anyway... The Kentucky Wildcats, oh my goodness, people will just talk your ear off. I mean, day after day after day after day, and I come back here, and you start talking about the Tar Heels, and you start, well, not really too many over this section of the the woods talk about the Blue Devils, but the Tar Heels, and of course there are, we diehard NC State fans, and we do our best to get excited as well, but it's amazing to me. People get all excited about a sports team. Maybe if you put a gun to their head and back them up against the wall, they'll squeeze out a word about Jesus. And there's just something really wrong with that. There's something really messed up when we get more passionate for a basketball or a football team that in the grand scheme of things really doesn't mean much at all. And then it comes to the Lord Jesus, and for some of us, maybe with a gun to our head, we'll say a a good word about him. This year at our convention, I'm a Southern Baptist, at our convention in San Antonio, we were reminded there are 1.6 billion people on planet Earth that have never even heard the name of Jesus. That's one-fourth of the world's population. That's what I want to be passionate about. That's what I want to give my life to. That's what I want to see occur so that Revelation 5 will be fulfilled and we will see from every tribe, every tongue, every people, and every nation saying a good word about the Jesus who has saved them from their sins. Well, the saints have praised him. The angels have praised him and now all of creation gets involved. Verse 13, every creature which is in heaven, on the earth, Under the earth, such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, here's what I heard them saying, blessing and honor, glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, well, that's God the Father, and to the Lamb forever and ever, that's God the Son. And then verse 14, the four living creatures said, amen, so be it, it is done. And the 24 elders, oh, they fell down and they worshiped him who lives forever and ever. Think with me for just a moment as we move to close. Imagine if before we are through worshiping in just a few moments, that door over there was suddenly to open. Walking down over and coming in front of us, standing here in front of us was, oh, I don't know, the governor of our state. Now, whether you agree uh, with his politics or not, doesn't matter. He's our governor. And it would be right for us to stand in his honor. It would be the right thing to do. And imagine if before we're through in the next few moments, over there, out of that door, comes our president, George Bush. He walks over, comes and stands here in front of us. Now, whether you agree with his politics or not, he's our president. It would be right for us to stand, and I would argue even to applaud, because the dignity of that office would demand that we respond in that way. But dear brothers and sisters, if suddenly standing here in front of us was the Lord Jesus. To stand would be so inadequate. To applaud would almost be arrogant. You see, the only rightful response in light of who he is and what he has done is right there in verse 14. 
they fell down, and they worshiped him forever and ever. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that this world is not out of control, but there is a lamb on the throne in heaven whose name is Jesus, and he has the whole world in his hands, and he is guiding, and he is directing, and he is orchestrating all things to their perfect, climactic end. And Heavenly Father, I praise the Lord Jesus, and I thank you so much that he reigns in heaven, and that also, by faith, he reigns in my heart. And Lord, it would be my prayer that if there's anybody here, even one, a man or a woman, a teenager, a little boy or a little girl who recognizes I'm a sinner, I don't deserve to go to heaven either. But I understand Jesus paid it all for me. And they would like to embrace him as their Lord and Savior. I would pray, Lord, that they would find maybe a friend, a parent, a brother or sister. And they would simply say, I want to become a Christian. I want the Jesus who reigns in heaven to also be the Lord who reigns in my heart. And that they would make that greatest of all decisions, and that is to trust Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. And then, Lord, for all of us who know you as our Savior, it is my prayer that indeed as you are adored, worshipped, loved, and praised in heaven, you would find that same response from each one of us as well. Out of gratitude for who you are and what you've done, we would love you. We would praise you. We would worship you. We would adore you. We would serve you. We would give you all that we are all the days that you give us because you and you alone are worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. May he indeed find that same worth in each of our lives to his glory. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.